Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our events, including on March the 25th, a salon with Tara Isabella Burton on faith and democracy. Coming up on the show today, Chris Armstrong, author of the new book, A Blue New Deal, Why We Need Politics for the Ocean. Uh, Chris, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you for having me. So congratulations uh, on the book. And as you say at the beginning, it's animated by this belief that serious discussion on the future of the world's oceans uh, is long overdue. Absolutely. Uh, So one of the claims I make is that we have a gaping ocean-sized hole in our politics. Obviously, there is an ocean politics, there's ocean law, there's ocean governance institutions, but I think it's generally far removed from ordinary political discussion, out of sight, out of mind from the point of view of the average citizen, I would presume. And, I mean, you have some amazing statistics to set up the argument of the book that seven-tenths of the world's surface lies under the water. It's home to two million species, the bulk of which are unknown to science. Uh, And, in fact, the the world's oceans represent the vast majority of its inhabitable space. So, you know, this is uh, the the stakes could hardly be higher for us. Absolutely. Uh, So one thing that really struck me was that I remember probably like you going to school and being told that the rainforests are the lungs of the planet because they absorb carbon dioxide and and use the carbon and let out the oxygen. And that's true. And we love the rainforest for that reason. But by far the biggest set of lungs out there are, is the ocean. It, It performs all these incredibly fundamental ecosystem roles. It drives weather patterns. People are nutritionally dependent on it, especially in the global south. So it's increasingly actually key to human survival and, and livelihoods. So why why is it, do you think, that uh, we so rarely bother to reflect upon it, given that, that it's so important? And also that uh, the ocean, uh, d- d- there's no doubt that it, it plays a part in our imagination. It's not as if it's something that uh, is out of sight, out of mind. I suppose... We may have this idea that the ocean is not going anywhere. And obviously the ocean isn't going anywhere. If anything, the ocean is growing with climate change. But that, I think, neglects the fact that when we rely on the ocean for important ecosystem functions, we are relying largely on creatures that live in the ocean and they are really under threat. So I think we've kind of inherited this idea that the ocean is just a place, it goes on doing its thing, the tide rolls in every day and goes out again. And it's unchanging and dependable. And I think in many ways it is unchanging and dependable, but in other ways we are now discovering it's highly changeable and therefore not particularly dependable. Yeah, I think the word that you use in the uh, in the book is lackadaisical, our, our attitude, that we just somehow assume that the oceans will continue to support life, life on Earth in the way that uh, they always have done. Exactly. That, that's right. And I think it's striking that when I talk in the book about some of the intellectual origins of the way we, we think about the ocean, I go back to this Dutch scholar called Hugo Grotius, who who writes this book, The Free Sea. And what's striking is that the foundation for his ideas on the ocean is precisely this this vision that the 
ocean is is infinite, limitless, can keep on supplying resources ad infinitum. And I think that that idea really is ripe for change, but it has, it lingers on. And there are, I mean, the, I suppose the, the counterblast uh, that uh, in many ways this book uh, provides is underpinned by, uh, right at the very beginning, you talk about the various extinction events that have taken place and uh, in terms of life on Earth, the, not least the, the fifth and last one that wiped out the dinosaurs. But uh, as you point out, some scientists are, are arguing that we may be at the beginning of a, of a, sixth, of a sixth one. I mean, it, is, the, is there a danger of being alarmist or is, is this really really where we're at, do you think? I guess scientifically, there's not complete consensus that we are in or entering a sixth great extinction. But I think the claim is plausible. So scientists talk about a background rate of extinction, and we expect a degree of extinction, some species pass the test of time, and some are outcompeted. But it looks as though we're losing species at somewhere between 100 and 1000 times the, the usual background rate, which is why I think talk of a, a sixth great extinction becomes plausible. And we haven't yet reached the level of extinctions we saw, as you mentioned, in the fifth great extinction when the, the dinosaurs became extinct. But on the other hand, to counterbalance that note of optimism, if we are entering a sixth great extinction, we're doing it really, really quickly. So the the, the acceleration of species loss is, is quite frightening. And the other aspect to this, that uh, p potentially whole countries might vanish as, as sea levels rise, that uh, livelihoods, uh, even existence is, is, being in is being threatened, um, that we, we need to shake off the idea that the oceans are simply too big to fail, you say? Yes, absolutely. I think it is long overdue, this kind of discussion that tries to put the future of the ocean centre stage. So how we do that institutionally is, is anyone's guess. Maybe we ought to have ministers of the ocean or ministries of the ocean. But certainly I think a, an active, vibrant discussion about how we can turn ocean politics around is, is certainly on the cards, I would hope. Yeah, but one of the one of the aspects of the book that you keep returning to actually is is how political this is. Not least because the the oceans are governed by such a complex web of international agreements and international laws, many of which are contradictory. That many of the issues are themselves emotive. I mean, even uh, in something like Brexit, we've seen how uh, the uh, an issue like fishing uh, can completely change the nature of a debate in a very emotional kind of a way so yeah how do we how do we even begin to navigate these things politically it's a good question i'm not entirely sure i know the answer so i think you're right the ocean comes and goes in political consciousness so you know a, a large ship gets stuck in the Suez canal and suddenly we all become aware of how dependent we are on a few key sea routes a uh, an oil tanker spills its oil and uh, you know we see pictures of dead or dying seabirds and it percolates into public consciousness again but then it fades away again so how we ensure that the ocean gains its rightful place at the center of politics i mean i hope the book is a contribution i think there are lots of ngos that are trying to argue 
that we need to make a kind of oceanward turn in our political consciousness. Make, some of them are making some quite basic points that you would think were intuitively obvious, like the claim that we have human rights even when we are out at sea. It sounds almost too obvious to say, you know, who would think our human rights disappear when we go out there on the oceans? But one of the learning experiences for me writing the book was discovering the the horrifying extent to which people working out there in the open ocean are vulnerable to some kinds of exploitation and abuse. So, so I think there's a lot of engagement that needs to happen. Yeah, that I have to say that was actually, for me, one of the most surprising and most striking elements of the book, this, this whole question uh, of human rights for those who work in the, in the oceans. It turns out that, I mean, these are some of the most vulnerable workers in the entire world, you show. Yes, um, they are geographically very far far away from their their fellow citizens. They might be a couple of hundred miles out to sea. They may not may not have communications with people back home. They may not be able to contact unions or friends or families if they're in trouble. And all of this adds up to a pattern of extensive vulnerability. So I'm sure that most employers, most skippers, most people who run the fishing industry care about human rights and labour rights. But the the extent of vulnerability means that unscrupulous actors have really gotten away for far too long with some some horrifying abuses, you know, right from beating workers, forcing them to work, all the way to, to killing them and throwing their bodies overseas. In a way that I think, you know, if when people sit down to have uh, their fish and chips or whatever it may be, they don't really have cause to think about, but it looks as though we are potentially connected morally to some some horrifying abuses out there. Yeah, it, it, it's one of the themes that actually runs through the book, that uh, much of the book is concerned with the, the issues that you were talking about earlier, about the environment and climate change and uh, and so on. But but there is this, this social question that runs as a theme throughout the entire book, uh, and this question of inequality, which you argue really is rooted in the whole question of the oceans. Yes, so I argue in the book that we face two crises in ocean governance, and one probably is more familiar. It's the environmental crisis from climate change to plastic pollution and and so on. But I also want to argue that it's this simultaneous crisis of, of sweeping inequality. And there are various fairly distinctive reasons why the ocean economy is so unequal. One of them is is the obvious one that countries' access to the sea, geographically speaking, just varies so much. So we have landlocked countries, which are often very poor. We have some countries which have meagre coastlines, even if they have very large populations. So there's geographical inequality, but there are also inequalities in access to capital and technology, which you know, roughly speaking, are going to track the wealth of a country. Given that some of the resources out there on the ocean and on the seabed under the deep sea are so expensive to extract, the danger is always in the ocean economy that they may just be hoovered up by the few and that the many might lose out. They may not even be able to join that party at all. And this is a a challenge that ocean politics and ocean law grapples with for decades and is still grappling with in the context of 
debates that are going on now about marine genetic resources. And I would say it's a nut we absolutely have not yet cracked. Um, so turning back the tide of inequality in the ocean economy, I think it's it's a real challenge. Yeah, you you give plenty of examples of that, but but essentially that uh, for for example, if we're using the genetic sequence of of some kind of uh, sea life, who owns that uh, genetic sea? Is it scientists? Is it uh, the corporations that back the scientists? The spin-offs? Is it countries? Could they be patented in the in the future? So there are all kinds of uh, moral technical legal questions that uh, this something like this raises for sure so one of the big discussions that's going on at the moment as i say is how we ought to govern biological resources out there on the high seas so the high seas is the bit of the ocean the majority of the ocean which is beyond any state's bit of marine territory beyond its exclusive economic zone and it's something like 64 percent of the ocean and the legal framework there is just extremely permissive. So we have some constraints on fishing, but they're largely optional. If you want, if your state wants to sign up to what gets called a regional fisheries management organisation, it's free to. But if it doesn't, then you're not going to be bound by any limits on on fishing. So the discussions that are going on in the United Nations right now. I mean, they're meeting in New York now to discuss a different future for biological resources on the the high seas, rules that might need to be in place to to share benefits, to make sure that environmental damage is properly limited. They're ongoing. And I think some people are fairly optimistic about the agreement we might get and others are a bit less optimistic. I think it would be an achievement to have an agreement at all, given the number of different countries that have a stake in what happens on the high seas. But looking at the draft treaties that have been published so far i'm a little bit pessimistic that an agreement that emerges is going to properly engage with these challenges of environmental destruction and and inequality because essentially for at the moment where no country has territorial waters the rule is pretty much first come first served absolutely so we are calling on states to to bind themselves in ways that they're not currently bound. And that's not always an easy sell. There's the additional quirk, which is that out there on the the open ocean, it's not necessarily the, the state where you come from as a skipper or as a crew or where your boat comes from, which controls your activities. It's a state that your, your vessel is flagged under and changing flag is relatively cheap and easy. We have the emergence of these things called flags of convenience, where you can you can sail under the flag of a state that you well know is not really going to be especially vigilant about how you treat workers, how you treat the ocean environment. And I think as long as we have these flags of convenience, we have we have big holes in the web of ocean governance, if you like. It looks as though we have kind of a handy legal protection for unscrupulous actors. And that's that's one of the reasons why you argue that we need a new settlement for the oceans, not based on uh, corporate or national enrichment, but on on this social agenda that you've been talking about. Yes. Now, I think that that could take a number of different dimensions. So I'm quite careful to say in the book that we could make some significant advances given existing institutions. 
So given that states have these things called exclusive economic zones, there's lots of ways in which they could govern them better in a more precautionary way. And that could make a really positive difference to the ocean environment. But ultimately, I don't think that's going to be enough. And we have to raise the big question of how the high seas, two thirds of the ocean, is going to be governed. Because how we're doing it at the moment, the principle of the freedom of the sea, the, the highly permissive institutional framework, has left us with, with problems we just haven't got to grips with. So, yeah, in the last chapter of the book, I allow myself to to dream a bit and to imagine what a, a more comprehensive solution to the governance of the high seas might look like. And I, I kind of envisage a, a future where the high seas are governed some, in, in something like the same way as a national park, or, or maybe better, we should say, an international park. I argue that we need a thing called a World Ocean Organization that, in a sense, acts as a guard or steward or protector of the high seas environment. I, I was really interested in that. I mean, the, so the World Ocean Authority would defend 80% of the world's oceans, uh, you say. And and there you use the word guard in the in the, the book. You use the word defend, uh, I think. I was kind of struck what, what you think that defense might be, whether we're kind of talking about something that, you know, would be a kind of almost an ocean military alliance like NATO that could literally protect this area uh, or whether it would be something that uh, that would effectively just be a league of nations, and in which case, how would that protection, that enforcement, uh, come about? So one model is what happens on the deep seabed underneath the high seas, where we have this thing created by the Convention on the Law of the Sea called the International Seabed Authority. Now, the rules that the International Seabed Authority is meant to apply to seabed mining if it ever comes to pass have never been entirely clear and to some extent the prospect of seabed mining technologically is is moving faster than the, the legal political framework that would be necessary to govern it but but here at least we have the idea that there is an international authority that gets to say whether mining on a deep seabed is permissible and it has this environmental brief so lots of the, the creatures on the deep seabed are very vulnerable. They're very slow growing and they can't repair their bodies if they are damaged by mining activities. So in a sense, what I'm doing is taking the, the model of the International Seabed Authority and saying, being, let's be really serious about this and let's expand it so it doesn't just apply to the, the seabed, but the, in the entire water column plus seabed, as the scientists would put it. And so I... I don't imagine it necessarily as a kind of military organization. I think it's plausible perhaps that in order to protect workers at sea, we might one day desire or need something like an ocean police. So I, I talk about that a little bit, um, but I essentially see it as a kind of a protective organization that sets the rules and can define the terms on which people exploit high seas resources or whether they exploit high seas resources and ecosystems. So clearly it might need some kind of sanctioning power, but I think I would be hesitant to jump straight away to the kind of military model if we can assume that, you know, action short of that might, might be effective.
I wonder as well what role you think that uh, business might have to play in uh, the, making the kind of advances, particularly in, in something like climate change um, uh, in, in the oceans. We had uh, Sebastian Malaby on the, sh- on the show last week talking about venture capitalism. And you know, one, of the, one of the points that comes out of that is that very often uh, it's, it's someone like Elon Musk uh, and Tesla that can completely change the agenda on cars and, and, and emissions from cars uh, and so on. Pat Brown and Impossible Foods changing the agenda on the meat market by uh, kind of bringing out the Impossible Burger and so on. Do you do you think that there's a way of harnessing that kind of entrepreneurial energy and transformative quality uh, for the oceans? I think there's definitely potential for that. So, so one thing we know about the ocean economy is that it's it's highly oligarchic in form. So there have been some interesting papers that have shown that, you know, whatever sector of the ocean economy we want to talk about, whether it's fishing or fossil fuels or or mining, each of those sectors of the economy is significantly dominated by about 10 corporations. The corporations shift depending on the case. But roughly speaking, in each of those sectors, about 10 corporations are responsible for about half or almost half of all the income in that sector of the ocean economy. Now, what that suggests is that these corporations have got lots of power. And if they chose to act differently, they could make a a great difference to how we do things. So, I mean, I pick up that example when it comes to the protection of workers. I think if these, these 10 biggest global fishing outfits really got together and decided to use the technology that they probably do have the capacity to to really track what happens in their supply chains they could make an enormous difference to the treatment of workers in fishing if they refused if they were genuinely serious about clamping down on abuses in the in their supply chains i think they could be hugely positive outcomes I don't know if they're likely to do that off their own bats. There may need to be some consumer pressure. So we may need to talk more in public and in the media about who these corporations are and the potential that they have to make a positive difference before they decide that it's in their interest to do so. But I think they certainly have the the potential to make a, a major change to the way that we protect the ocean environment as well as workers' rights. And it, it it does seem to me that a lot of the things that you're talking about do require a step change in, in terms of imagination. That I mean, one of the, the most fascinating questions that you bring up is what actually happens to citizens of islands, uh, perhaps in the, in the Pacific um, and the Indian Ocean, that, that may be completely lost? That what happens to their citizenship if that happens? What happens to their sense of community? Uh, is there a way of maintaining their citizenship uh, almost in a kind of a metaverse uh, for real in a, in a way um, even once their physical environment no longer exists so I mean these are these are pretty weighty questions aren't they they are and they are it's somewhat tragic that we have to think about them and of course many inhabitants of small island states want to say that it is not inevitable that they will lose their their islands and become homeless or perhaps find a home somewhere else. They're not necessarily resigned to that fate, but it looks as though even if we we mitigate climate change pretty seriously over the next decade or two, 
there is a significant degree of sea level rise that's probably already locked in by our past emissions. So we have to take these questions seriously, I think. What it really requires us to do is to be a bit imaginative, I think, about the way that we think about familiar concepts like statehood and self-determination and belonging and citizenship, as you suggest. So can we imagine a future for a, a small island state when the land territory of that small island state is entirely underwater, what would statehood look like without a land territory? I think we have some historical reference that we can pick up on. So it has been the case in the past that countries that have been invaded and overrun by their enemies have lingered in the international system as states they've continued to be recognized as states even if they don't govern any land territory any longer that usually has been the case presumably in the hope that they will regain their land territory once more which is less obvious in the case of small island states so sea level rises sea levels presumably would fall again but not not for thousands of years so i think we have to be creative I think there is this council of despair out there that says that if small island states are entirely submerged and these people will lose their citizenship and their state and they will be exiles, they'll have to be admitted elsewhere as individuals, as immigrants in other states. And in the book, I try to imagine various possible futures that allow islanders to maintain a kind of collective political identity and to retain some kind of collective political reality. And we can talk about what that looks like. I mean, one possibility is that these islanders could recreate their state somewhere else. Someone else might give up territory to them. That looks somewhat unlikely. It might be the ideal solution, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. Another possibility is that they might at least retain their marine territories, so their exclusive economic zones which currently surround their islands. International law, the law of the sea, seems to tell us that if their islands disappear and are no longer habitable, then their marine territories also disappear. So I raised the question of whether that's a judgment that we ought to, to make, whether continuing to recognise marine territories, albeit with no land at the centre of it, might be a way of maintaining a political identity and attachment for these islanders. And I, I guess that's why it's the bl the Blue New Deal, because like Roosevelt's original New Deal, this is not just a technical question in, in that case about the depression uh, here, about the state of the oceans, that this it's, it's also, as we talked about before, it's a social question. It's, a, it's about people, about real people and how their lives are being affected and trying to put those two things together. That's exactly right. Yeah. So there's a, there's a conscious echo with the idea of the, the New Deal, which is also picked up in the idea of a Green New Deal, of course, that I'm partly piggybacking on. And I take it the idea generally of a New Deal is that we often need a kind of technical fix, as you say, for the economic doldrums we find ourselves in or the environmental challenges we face. But why not use a response to those major collective challenges to also tackle exclusion and inequality? Right? Why not see this as a major opportunity, actually, 
to protect livelihoods and involve people in ocean politics in a way that they haven't been to date. So the book is A Blue New Deal, Why We Need a New Politics for the Ocean. It's written by my guest, Chris Armstrong, and published by Yale University Press. Uh, But for now, Chris, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. It's been great. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damian Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. (laughs) 